This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Typically, when you have a, a newborn kid, parents don't you know, talk about anything else except for their kid, and they're showing their pictures off. I'm not going to do that today. Uh, I'm not going to put out a picture of him in the back and say how awesome he is <laughs> and how cute he is. And uh, he turns two months today. And so happy birthday, Caden, at home. He gets his shots tomorrow. Don't tell him. But with a seven-week-old baby at home, well, eight weeks tomorrow, or today, someone say sleep, Sarah and I are uh, adjusting to, to, to new rhythms in our life. We're trying to get back to our daily routines that we had before Caden. And so we're trying to get back to that stable rhythm of life. But what happens is, when you get in the rhythm of doing something or saying something for most of your life, what typically happens is that you get stuck doing something or saying for the rest of your life. I have an, uh, an embarrassing example that I, that I want to share with you guys because I, I believe vulnerability starts with vulnerability. For most of my life, I've been calling a backpack a pack pack. And when I say most of my life, I mean after high school, after college, in marriage, in seminary. And my wife was the, my wife was the one that finally said, what did you call it? <laughs> so I've been calling a backpack for a back, see, I'm doing it now. I've been calling a backpack a pack pack for so long that I accidentally still call it a pack pack. The wrong understanding of the word led me to the wrong pronunciation of the word, and this was so instilled in my mind that when it was finally revealed to me, when the scales came off my eyes, I was in shock that I had it wrong for so many years. I was asking Sarah, are you sure it's called a backpack? How ridiculous. But that's what an extended, continued non-corrected misunderstanding of something will do to you. It made me think, man, what else have I been getting, it, getting wrong this whole time? And this next section of the text, and for the next upcoming week, we'll look at six statements of Jesus, uh, six statements that directly contrast and correct false interpretation and application of God's law in the Old Testament. And today we'll look at the first, you have heard it, but I say to you statements of Jesus when he talks about murder and anger and reconciliation. So the title for today's sermon is An Exhortation for Reconciliation. An Exhortation for Reconciliation. And we'll be studying Matthew 5, 21 to 26. If you don't have a Bible, it should be a Bible in front of you. Go ahead and grab that and keep it if you don't have one at home. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is our big idea. This is the main thing that I want you to take away. Followers of Jesus are called to address sinful anger by choosing to reconcile with others in love. Followers of Jesus are called to address sinful anger by choosing to reconcile with others in love. And there's three proclamations of this passage by Jesus. Here's our first one. Jesus reveals a fuller expression of murder. Jesus reveals a fuller expression of of murder. We're in Matthew 5, verse 21. Follow along. Let's read this verse. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Here's the first, you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. And to expand our context, the six commands include anger and lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. And before we focus on anger today, we need to ask, why did Jesus select these certain commands from the Old Testament when there were literally hundreds of commands that he could have selected from? That were these the, uh, the sins, the laws that were treading on, um, on Twitter? Were they popular? Were these the ones that people uh, did not like? Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, uh, retaliation, loving your enemy, they all share a commonality of not being an isolated or, or a direct command that involves just one individual. But they all share and intertwined with each other as relational commands. And what binds them all together is the greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40 says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all, depend all the law and the prophets. Love God and love others. We love by obeying Christ's commandments and to teach us and call us to love others. One naturally flows out of the other. Without a right relationship with God, our relationship with others will not be right either. And the text says, you have heard it said. Jesus is not opposing the commands of Moses. He's not against it. Jesus is quoting from the Bible. But his opposition is against how Scripture has been interpreted and taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. The focus was not the law, what the law was saying, but how the religious leaders taught the law, how they limited the law based on their own self-righteous. Right? If these were the law, it made them look really good. And Jesus is here to teach them truth and correct a, a misunderstanding and lack of fullness that the word itself cannot fulfill, which is exactly why Jesus says in verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. I have come to fill it full of meaning. You've heard how the sixth commandment has been taught. The physical premeditated killing of someone is wrong. Murder is wrong. The previous understanding of the scribes and the Pharisees was not, was if you do not commit this deed, then you have kept, kept the commandment. If you're not responsible for a homicide, you're deemed to be obedient to God's law, but they were missing the point. And they also added, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And this is true, but they were still missing the point. The judgment that's referenced here, the judgment of people through the courts, not the judgment from God, they were excluding the divine judgment. And see, they, they read this law in a way that was limited, restricted to just an act of killing and judgment based on what man can only see. Let's look at what Jesus says next in verse 22. Follow along. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell 
of fire. Maybe your Bible has a, um, a footnote that says, uh, uh, anger without cause. Jesus teaches and corrects the misinterpretation of the law in verse 22. He says, I say to you. And I love how this one commentator says this, I may be the single most important word here. I say to you adds no supporting authorities, no argument, no reason, no justification, not even scripture, but it remains alone. Why? Because the words of Jesus are sufficient. Moses, for example, never said, I say to you, but rather says, the Lord says to you. As Sinai, God spoke through Moses, but on this sermon, on this mount, Jesus is speaking for himself. Right? Jesus isn't correcting the Bible, but in fact, Jesus is for the Bible, and the Bible is for Jesus. The authority of Jesus is sufficient because of who Jesus is, the Son of God, fully man and fully God. And if you don't believe in who Jesus is, I'm guessing this is just advice. But if you believe in this Jesus, the person of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and these words are the way of life. Christ reminds the people of his authority, to which all of the past teaching ought to take a back seat right now. So we're at a point, regardless of what was said, what was taught, the custom, the tradition, the understanding, the truth of Jesus is here and is greater weight than anything else. And Jesus redefines murder. In fact, he's defining murder in a fuller and deeper expression that moves past the need and gets into the motive of your heart. The true interpretation of this command is this is not, is not to hoard unrighteous anger against one another. For the root of murder starts within your heart. It starts from sinful anger. And Jesus is not forbidding anyone to get angry because not all anger is evil. Right? Jesus himself was angry. And the word guides us how we ought to confront and reconcile anger. But Jesus is saying that the anger due to your pride, due to your desire for selfish revenge, due to your unweighted judgment, Due to your choice not to forgive, that's unrighteous anger. And that will be subject to judgment. Jesus also warns us not to insult our brothers and sister, right? Calling someone raka or empty-headed or accusing someone of being a fool. And I think the point here is not the specifics of the insult, but the motive and the hatred in our hearts that even led you to the point to verbally put down another person. What's even more shocking is how Jesus reveals that your unrighteous anger towards another brother or sister in Christ results in an eternal punishment liable to hell. The judgment that Jesus talks about here is not talking about the judgment in court, the judgment of man, but the judge that is perfect. The judgment of God, the divine judgment. And this kind of seems disproportionate, right? I mean, I get, I get murder. That seems fair. But anger? Or sinful anger? This is not disproportionate. 
But Jesus reveals the seriousness of sin. The holiness of God. Though prideful anger and insulting words may never lead to the deed of murder, it's equivalently serious to God, so it should be serious to us. Jesus here, he comes and drops the mic. He reveals a fuller expression of murder. Here's our second proclamation of Jesus. Write this down. Jesus teaches reconciliation amongst his followers surpasses the sacredness of an offering. Jesus teaches that reconciliation amongst his followers surpasses the sacredness of an offering. We're in Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24. Follow along with me. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is against unrighteous anger, and he provides a great application here. The example is this. this. Don't you dare come to worship God and yet hold hatred in your heart toward your believing brother or sister. If you can't forgive your brother, we need to talk about something. Matthew 6, 14 to 15 says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That has weight to that text. That's a heavy text. And in these verses of 23 and 24, the text is specific to brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says, If you remember... That a follower of Jesus, not just specific to your location or denomination or even your congregation, it says any brother or sister in Christ, if they're angry with you, Jesus says to go and seek reconciliation. And I wanted to take a quick definition time out here and look at what reconciliation means. I imagine you and your best friend get into a disagreement. Uh, It gets uh, personal. It gets uh, spicy. It gets heavy, it gets salty, it gets, I'm just using adjectives now that don't make sense, but the the mutual good relationship that existed between two people, your best friend, it's strained because of the argument. Or strained enough where the actual friendship that you shared, it doesn't feel like it's active anymore. And so a mutual friendship is now estranged, broken a little bit. But the reversal of that estrangement is what we call reconciliation. The restoration of that friendship, of that relationship is reconciliation. The restoration of that harmony that you once shared. When that is resolved, reconciliation happens. But that doesn't mean that relationships just automatically jump back to where it was before. It's possible that a relationship will look completely different. But there's a sense of attempt, there's a sense of release, and there's a sense of peace that we follow the commands of Jesus. And here's the part where it gets a little bit messy. Like, imagine if it's in your scenario, it's not your best friend, but any follower of Jesus. That might include a strange relationship with a person that might be in this room, someone that lives with you, someone 
um, that works with you, someone uh, in your circle of friends. There's no exclusion clause, clause in this text. We're all sinful. And we, we have and we will exhibit unrighteous anger in our lives, but we can still choose to keep God's commands by promptly seeking reconciliation with those that we have hurt. Again, Jesus is saying, don't get angry, but he's saying sinful anger produces hate, that produces murder. And the point is not to prevent killing, but is to promote loving. Right? It's not feasible um, and even sinful for any person to never get angry. That's not possible. But it is possible to get it right again, or at least from our, our side, to seek to get it right to those whom we have hurt. The attempt at full reconciliation is important. Romans 12, 8 says this, Rejoice, that's not it. Romans 12, 18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully, peacefully with all. But what does this mean to us today? See, our problem is that when we get angry, most of the time it's not to the brokenness of the world, but it's when we make it about ourselves. When we elevate ourselves before others, when we're offended and we put that on our altar and our focus, the root of anger is the opposite of loving God and loving our neighbor. Well, Robin, See, I'm not really an angry person. I don't really do that. I'm pretty quiet, and um, I'm pretty good at keeping my anger inside of me, in my heart, and that's kind of the point. We get angry in our hearts, don't we? We get angry in our hearts because we're all selfish in our hearts. We get angry in our hearts when something is taken away from us. God, I deserved this. God, I waited And this person took it away. We get angry when we feel something is owed to us. God, I worked and did this for you, and this person did not give it to me. We get angry when our expectations of a person or even ourselves are not according to our, uh, is not according to our standard and not set by God, but by people. All of that are examples of unrighteous anger, and we need to repent of that. See, we as a people, we're not good at exhibiting just anger, but we're really good at justifying our sinful anger, right? When Jesus got mad, it's not because he took something personal, but he was angry at sin and injustice and the brokenness of the world because of sin. In fact, he was the most misunderstood, mistreated, mistaken person of all time, and yet Jesus, the Son of God, chose to forgive. He chose not to retaliate in anger, but he chose to love. Angertude. Anger is not just an attitude. See what I did there? Angertude. It's not just an emotion. It's a choice. And Jesus is commanding not just a deed, but a choice that starts with in our hearts. So it's our choice to try and keep this commandment by applying it to our lives. How do we do that? 
Got three things. The first one, repent of unrighteous anger. Repent of unrighteous anger. This doesn't happen naturally. We need to go before God. We need to ask God to search our hearts. We need to ask, is there resentment? Is there bitterness? Is there forgiveness that I'm holding? Now, just a seed of those things can grow so deep in our hearts if we're not repenting of it. Don't let that seed grow. Repent of unrighteous anger. The second one is this. You have a choice to to not harbor hatred. Don't stay angry. Don't nurture your hatred. It doesn't need your nurture. Don't let it sit. Don't let it accumulate over time. Go and work through it by resolving it, by repenting it, by confessing it. That's a hard one. We have a choice to love like Jesus. Right, killing does not mean just destroying a person physically, but it means destroying the person, their soul, their reputation in any shape or form. And we're called to do the opposite, right? encouraging one another, building each other up for the sake of his kingdom. Right, even when they're wrong, even when they make, made a mistake, we can still correct them in love. We can still act in love. Let's not forget that our goal is solely not to be angry, but our goal is to be obedient to the greatest commandment given to us by God is to love God and love people. One commentary makes a great point. He says, we get angry with Christians easiest because we expect the most from them. Mm, I heard that. But, By this shall all people know that you are the disciples of Jesus if you love one another. The chief mission that faces the Christian is to love and forgive each other as Christ has already forgiven them. And if you can't reconcile with each other, if we can't reconcile with each other, do we truly understand and apply the love of Christ in our daily lives? That's a question for all of us to ask. Specifically, there's someone in your life right now that you need to reconcile with so that you may be obedient to the words of Jesus. Do you have animosity with anybody in the body of Christ? Because I want to be clear, animosity is not the way of Jesus. He calls us to reconcile and repent so we can go to God. Jesus, he takes these relational commands very seriously. Because he came to restore these relationships. And he commands and expects his followers to do the same. And maybe you read this passage before and you're like, figuratively, I get it, Jesus, I get your point. Is Jesus being literal here? Because if Jesus is literally meaning this, it's pretty radical, right? right? Does Jesus really care that much about me having a, relation, a right relationship with other followers of Jesus, more than sacrificing to him, more than uh, giving to him financially, more than uh, going to church? The answer is yes. The work of, of religion, they're distasteful, distasteful to God. And they're rejected by God if we are in conflict and not loving one another. God's word says in 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height 
of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. That we worship God with our hearts, right? Worship isn't created on Sunday morning when the band starts to play. But worship starts within your heart. It's a posture of praise and humility before God. Jesus speaks of true worship in these two verses, right? You can't worship God unless you love and forgive others. And Jesus is saying, if you've offended someone, put a pause and go make peace with that person so that you can come and worship God fully in love. Right, here's the thing. If you signed up to follow Jesus, you've also signed up to love others without criteria, without judgment, without reason, except the reason that Christ loved us first. One commentator says, so are we to put Christ first or are we to put people first? I don't get it, Jesus. And when Christians decide to put Christ first and his word first, they soon discover that Christ often puts people first. The followers of Jesus, we ought to to do everything and anything possible to live with reconciled relationships amongst each other, if possible. Not for the sake of not being angry, but for the sake of loving one another, unified in Christ in one body. Jesus reveals a fuller expression of murder. Jesus teaches reconciliation amongst his followers. The third one is this, write this down. Jesus instructs to pursue reconciliation amongst all people without delay. Jesus instructs to pursue reconciliation amongst everybody, all people without delay. Let's read these, uh, these two verses, 25 through 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Right, here's another great uh, application and example from the teaching of Jesus. Jesus, in this example, is using a, a legal metaphor. Right, during the time of Jesus, a person who owed debt and um, defaulted on his debts could not, and could not pay on time, that person could be literally thrown into jail until the amount was paid in full. But the catch here is that once that person is an inmate, that person is still expected to, to pay to be released. But once you're locked up, you can't really earn anything to pay that debt off. And so Jesus is instructing urgency in reconciliation even to people that don't follow Jesus, to all people. One thing in today's world that we love so, so much is convenience, right? We love convenience. We love it to a fault. Portable things are, are so easy and great because it's convenient. It's less work sometimes. It's, it's easier. You don't need to bother anyone because you can bring your stuff wherever you go. It's easy. But portable things are not always the necessary choice or even uh, the best, though, even though they're convenient, right? Like porta potties, sometimes they save your life, but they're not going to be always our best choice. 
You know what? You know what, church? I think at times we're really good at bringing our anger with us. I call it portable anger. Because you know why? I think it's more convenient to store away our anger, to hide our anger, to forget our anger, than to work towards solving it. Right? It's easier to uh, carry this portable anger around than to fight it, to resolve it, to pray it for it, to, to be released. Jesus is saying, man, you have no time to bring your portable anger anywhere. If you're in a situation or a scenario where a reconciliation is evident, stay in that situation if it's safe for you, if it's possible so that you can come to terms quickly. He's calling for immediate action. And for some of us, if there's a need for reconciliation with someone, if there's a broken relationship that requires forgiveness on our end, I pray that the Holy Spirit works and stirs and convicts. And we take action to do that, to get it right. To restore that relationship, to release it to the Lord after attempting reconciliation for the sake of following Jesus. But I pray and encourage you to do this, not because it's, it's the, the right thing to do as a Christian or you'll feel better, but Jesus here is instructing us to do so. These are practical instructions from the Lord to avoid committing murder according to God's law and not according to uh, what, what was said by people. But we must take every possible step to live in peace and love for all. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. That doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them. But God's calling us to love them. You know, the word pack-pack is uh, still unfortunately in my head. I don't think it will ever go away. But I know the truth. And I, I, I have to often replace it with the word backpack, with truth. And for us today, we need to replace some of our ways of living life to reflect what has, God has shown us today. We might have to change the way that we communicate, the way that we confront, the way that we come to Sunday morning worship, the way we look and define being right before God. And I get it, time is needed, right? Time is needed, but time doesn't resolve it. So yeah, take your time, but don't let time do the work. Let the Holy Spirit, let Jesus do the work. God isn't calling us to, to not be angry people. That's not what he's saying. He's calling us to be loving people. Or why do we do this? And this is a lot of work that you're giving me. A lot of emotional, spiritual, physical, mental work to try and go and restore um, broken and messy relationships. Why do I need to forgive them? They don't, uh, they don't deserve my forgiveness. They don't deserve my love. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.18. It says this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you guys know that you guys were in the ministry of reconciliation? We ought to work for it so that 
others may be reconciled to him. We either have a we either have a relationship with God or we don't. Right? And the good news is that Jesus, he came to restore that relationship. And we didn't go to God, but God came to us through his son. Because we have sinned against God and the relationship that God and we had was broken, estranged. And because of the brokenness, we deserve eternal punishment from, uh, eternal judgment and punishment from God, which is separation from God, which is hell. But God did something about that relationship. He didn't wait. He sent his son, Jesus, so that we may be right again with him. And the only reason why he did did that, the only possible reason I can, it, it doesn't even make sense, but he did it because he loves us. And he sent his Caden down. He sent his son down for us out of his love. And the cross of Christ is fully demonstrated God's love. Jesus he didn't go to the cross out of anger, not a resentment, not an obligation, but out of love, Jesus went to the cross for us. So the wrath of God may be satisfied, so the consequences of our murder that we've committed in our hearts may be forgiven through Christ. But not only did Jesus take away what we were supposed to have, but he defeated it. The death that we were supposed to die, he defeated death once and for all because after Jesus died, in that same love, in that same power, he rose again three days later and is alive today and is yet to come again. He has defeated death for us and offers eternal salvation through faith in anyone who believes in his name all of this because God loves you. God's love for us should be so overwhelming that the extension of his grace and his mercy and forgiveness should be so underwhelming to us. Now that's how we apply it to our lives. Our strength isn't from ourselves, it's from him through his love. And what's impossible to man is possible to God. Right? God's love for you is greater than your weakness, greater than your failures, greater than your ability to forgive. The love of Christ. Through and in the love of Christ, Christ calls us to follow him by addressing sinful anger, by choosing to reconcile with others. Here's the key word. This is what makes it all right. In pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.